You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. We come by your Spirit. We come in the name of your Son. God, you are the source of all joy. And when the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It's recorded in in Matthew chapter 2. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that no matter what our circumstances uh, may uh, be, no matter what may be happening in our uh, relationships or in our uh, finances or in our health, Lord God, thank you that you have promised a joy that transcends uh, all of those things. And uh, a a joy that, that existed in eternity past, Lord, and a joy that will go on uh, for all of eternity. So Father, we pray that we would have joy right now as we open up your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak with great power and clarity through your servant as your word uh, is open, God. I pray that I would be able to preach right now with great faith, believing that your word is living and active. I pray that your word, as it's spoken uh, with faith, that it would be received and heard with faith so that um, we would receive it, not simply for the purpose of information, but for transformation uh, for your glory. And so we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that uh, right now. 1 Samuel chapter 16, just put up your hand if you need a Bible, and our ushers will pass one uh, along uh, to you. I want to begin with a little bit of a test here. I want to, just a bit of a vision test. What do you uh, see here up on the screen? And... Um, uh, so some of you might say, well, this is just, just a bunch of dots. And then some of you, yeah, immediately, that's, that's a star. You just, you just got to connect the dots, and, and that's a star. Well, is it really a star? Because or, or, those dots could also be, you know, a two pentagons, one right side up and one a smaller inside out. Or is it really just two circles? The same dots, if you trace them along, could, could have uh, two circles. You know, there, there, it seems like there's all kinds of different uh, variations. If, if you wanted to connect each and every dot, with the, there's lots of options. You see, we see things from different perspectives, don't we? And, and we, we tend to think that we know, we see some data, we see some information, and we think that we know, well, we can just connect the dots. I know exactly uh, what that is. The title for today's message is that the Lord does not see as man sees, and that's good news. And, and we need to understand and recognize that we don't always connect the dots properly. In fact, there are oftentimes dots that we don't see. And there are connections that we don't recognize. Only the Lord sees it. The, uh, theologically speaking, when we talk about God, we say that he is omniscient. Omniscient or omniscience. Omni means all and science means observation or seeing. We are not omniscient. We do not see all. This is something that's very humbling for us to acknowledge, especially in the information age. We think that because of our education and our experience, because of the fact that we can uh, uh, go on social media or go on to Google and look something up, that we can get all of the information to fully understand what's happening in a situation. But the Bible repeatedly tells us that we need to humble ourselves, that we don't actually know everything we think we know. We don't actually see things truly as they are. 
And our understanding, our vision is actually more shallow and more narrow than we're willing to admit. And what we need to do is humble ourselves, rely on the Lord, because the Lord does not see the way that we see. He sees in a way that is very, very different. And in this story for Samuel chapter uh, 16, we're going to see three ways in which the way that we see something is so different from the way that God sees. Take a look at chapter 16, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over all Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Here's the first way that the way God sees is different from us. You see, we see an ending, God sees a beginning. We see an ending, but God sees a beginning. God comes to Samuel and he says, how long will you grieve over Saul? Samuel is focused on the ending. Samuel is focused on the fact that the, the, the reign of Saul has come to an end, that Saul has been rejected, that he was the king the people wanted, and he turned out to be a, a disobedient, a, a impetuous disaster of a king, and that time had come to an end. After the battle with the Amalekites and his disobedience there, his kingdom was torn from him in the same way that Saul tore Samuel's robe. And Samuel was focused on the end. He was focused on the end of something, but God was pointing Samuel to the beginning of something new. He says, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He says, go to Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. He takes Samuel's grief and he replaces it with hope. Because we serve a God who was there from the beginning and who was always every morning, every day is a new opportunity to experience the beginning of his mercies afresh, we are, we, we are never just called to, to live in the end of something. We are always called to the beginning. There is, there is a master plan that is unfolding for our lives and for this universe. We so often see an end of something, but God God sees the beginning. He sends him to Jesse. And, and uh, Jesse is the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz uh, get married at the end of the book of Ruth, which happens at the time of the judges, uh, right around the time that, that, that uh, 1 Samuel was, uh, was written. And uh, Jesse was, was their great-grandson. And God sends Samuel to find a king in Bethlehem. And he says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now this doesn't really come through in English, and I'm no expert in, in Hebrew, but, but that word provided, the root word there is, is vision, is seeing. Uh, the, the Hebrew literally reads, I have seen for myself a king from among his sons. You see, th this passage is all about how we see versus how God sees. And that, that Hebrew word, ra'ah, for, for seeing, it appears five times in this passage that we're uh, studying today. This is all about how God sees. We see an end. The end of, the end of we're not going to see Saul as king in the same way anymore, but God has seen a king in 
Bethlehem among the sons of, of Jesse. Verse 2, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So Samuel is not only uh, filled with grief, he's also filled with fear. And uh, we're going to see the, the violence that's, that, that's just inherent in the way that Saul uh, led. And, and Saul is so paranoid, so jealous, that what started out like a, seeming like a genuine humility is getting distorted into this self-absorption and this insecurity. And so he, he thinks if, if he starts going somewhere with a horn full of oil, that uh, Saul is going to hear about it and... Uh, kill him. But God says, um, uh, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to, to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So God says, well, the, 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 way, the, the way the coronation is going to happen, the way the anointing is going to take place, is it's, it, it's not going to necessarily be public. We're, we're, going to, we're going to have this big sacrifice, Samuel, and then I'll show you what to do. While that big community gathering is happening, then you'll be able to identify who the king is. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. And came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Not only is Samuel afraid, because of the way Saul ruled and because of, of the instability of the time, everyone's afraid. Samuel shows up. I mean, he has quite the reputation after what he did to Agag, the king of the Amalekites. I mean, he's an old man, but he's very intimidating, obviously. And so everyone is sort of afraid. Samuel is afraid to go from one place to the next. The people are afraid. You see, this is a world filled with grief and filled with fear because it's a world that's filled with sin. Sin leads to grief. Sin leads to regret. Sin leads to sadness. And sin also leads to fear because sin is not the way things were meant to be. And, 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 and sin produces more sin, which causes us to not only be afraid of what we do or the consequences of our actions, but what other people will do to us, but it's in this world filled with sin, filled with grief, filled with fear, where God wants to rule over us as king, to replace that grief with hope, and to replace that fear with courage. Verse 5, it says, he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. That consecrate yourselves just make, basically means take a shower and do the laundry. It means uh, cleanse your body and wash your clothes. Make sure that you are, uh, on the exterior, you are, you are doing everything to show that, that you care about what's going on on the uh, interior. It was a sign of a purity, and he, he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. So we see an ending, but God sees a beginning. Saul was the king that the people wanted, but that time of Saul ruling was coming to an end. Saul is sort of just this ultimate picture of idolatry. An, an idol is something that we want instead of God. We exchange God. We say, we, no, we don't want God. We want something else. That's what an idol is. And that's what, it, that's what had been happening in the story so far. The people of Israel are searching for a king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God made it very clear that their desire to have a king like the nations was a rejection of 
him. But so often our idols seem like they're going to help us, but in fact they end up hurting us. Anything that we choose to, to, to stand in God's place will, could, could not ultimately do what only God can do and will end up hurting us. And loved ones, letting go of your idol is hard. Allowing the, a time in which you worship an idol or serve an idol can be very difficult. That time at coming to an end is very hard. But listen, if all you're ever thinking about when you're putting your idols to death, if all you're ever thinking about is the end, if all you're ever seeing is the end, you will actually never have the strength to put your idol to death. You see, we cannot simply focus on the end because God doesn't just see the end. He sees a beginning. And so maybe you struggle with an idol like Anger, and, and anger is your God. Anger is the way that you ultimately get what you uh, want, and, or it's how you respond when you don't get what you want. And you think, if I'm actually going to have this come to an end, because, listen, anger is not just about volume of your voice or gestures, or certain vocabulary. Anger goes far deeper. You, 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 just try it. If, if you promise to never raise your voice again, you can be very angry when you're whispering. You're not just going to deal with anger by just changing the way that you talk. No. If anger is going to come to an end, there's some fear there. There's some grief there because you're going to have to acknowledge some things that are happening in your heart. And that's going to be painful and hard. And you're going to have to be vulnerable with some people in order to actually deal with that anger. But, loved ones, don't just focus on the end of anger. Focus on the fact of the beginning of people relating to you from now on, not out of fear, not walking on eggshells around you according to certain issues, but relating to you out of love and out of trust. You might be struggling with some sort of addiction, and, and, it's, and maybe it's something very, very uh, 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 private, and, and, and you're afraid, it, well, if that, I know it needs to come to an end, but in order for it to come to an end, the, the drastic step that need to take, the, the kind of confession that I would need to do, and the kind of boundaries that would need to be put in place, to focus on the end would be very difficult, but remember that the, putting that to death, as hard as it may be, as afraid as you may be to put that to an end, you've got to understand that there's a beginning. That there's the freedom that comes. And that, and that there's, a, there's a new level of, of intimacy and vulnerability and joy in relationships because you're no longer holding back something or hiding something. See, the New Testament uses this kind of language all the time. Put off, that's the ending of something, but put on. That's the beginning. We so often only see the end, but God sees a beginning. Maybe you're here today and, and it's, it's not really an idle thing, or at, le at least you don't, you don't think so, but there's something that has happened in your life. Something has come to an end. Uh, a job opportunity or a relationship or a loved one has passed away. Something has come to an end. Maybe good health for you has come to an end and you are now in this new uh, season of a sickness, of illness. And, and we can think about, well, this is the end, but what is God beginning? You see, for the follower of Jesus Christ, the end is never the end. I mean, even if your life were to end today, really that's ultimately just a beginning, isn't it? Because 
We see an end. We see a Savior suffering on a cross and put into a cold tomb. We think that's the end, but that was just the beginning, wasn't it? And when we go to a funeral of a Christian and, and we know that their life has come to an end, or when we think about us dying, we need to understand, yeah, we see an end, but God sees a beginning. And God, help us to see that it's a beginning. Because there is this master plan for our lives and for the world so that we do not need to simply focus on the end. We can focus on the beginning by the grace of God. And that's what God wanted Samuel to do. So loved ones, if you're discouraged or apathetic or complacent, understand we have hope. Because God does not see the way that we see. And we need to lean on him to see things, to allow him to connect the dots, to, to allow him to show us the big picture and how it all fits together. So we see an ending, God sees a beginning. I make note of this, secondly, we see the outside God sees the inside. We see the outside. God sees the inside. Verse 6 says, When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab was the firstborn son of Jesse. He, just took, he took one look at him and he said, That's the franchise player right there. Let's sign him to a long-term contract, first-round draft pick. He's the one. It's clear. He's, he just looked on the outside and he thought this is who he was. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. Remember, that was the big mistake with Saul. Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. But the higher they are, the harder they fall. He says, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature because, they, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. That's the title for our message. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, you can uh, paint a house on the outside, but if the foundation is crumbling, if the studs are uh, rotting, if the drywall is full of mold and the roof is leaking, it doesn't matter how good the house looks on the outside, and what matters is what's happening on the inside. We don't buy a house or rent a house or an apartment just by looking at it from the outside. You don't just go and see the for sale sign on the lawn and then walk up to the front of the house and say, oh, we'll take it. No, you, you walk in, you look around, you take a look at the foundation, you get an inspection. Why? Because it doesn't matter how good it looks on the outside. What matters is you, you, you're going to have to live there. How, what is it like on the inside? And we live in this, you know, picture-perfect social media world where there's so much emphasis on how we appear or come across on the outside and we need to be reminded that the Lord looks on the inside. But i got to ask you a question. Is that good news or bad news? Is it good news or bad news that God is, is focused on the inside and not on the outside? I mean... Uh, on some level, it's, it's good news. It's refreshing. It means that you know, we don't necessarily have to dress up in our Sunday best in order to come to church. And, and, and it doesn't necessarily matter how, how attractive we look or how put together we, we might come across. Because God, isn't, God doesn't judge a book by its cover. That, that he cares more about the content of our a character. 
Because we can in our world so much focus on looking attractive, looking fit, looking cool, looking tough, looking smart, looking confident. We can focus so much on the outside. So it is a good reminder that God looks on the heart. But, so it is good news in one sense, but loved ones in another sense, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you understand that God looks on the heart and not on the outside, that's actually very bad news. Because the truth is, apart from God's work in your life, we're a lot worse on the inside than we are on the outside. One of the reasons why we focus so much on the outside is to distract other people and ourselves from how bad things are on the inside. That's why the self-esteem generation is one of the most depressed generations in the, in the history of, of the human race. Because we have been told by our teachers, by Disney, by Oprah, by everyone, to look inside yourself. The answer is inside yourself. And everyone's looking inside themselves and what are they seeing? They're seeing it's not good in there. The house is rotting from the inside out. The foundation is crumbling. There's, there's mold. There's all kinds of stuff that we can't deal with. And, and there's this incongruence between what's happening in, our, in, a, in the inner life and what we're showing people on social media. And so everyone feels like they're living like this, like, like, like this, kind, of, this kind of functional hypocrite where, where our life does not match what's happening in our, in our social media world. And yet we've been told that it, what matters is the, is the inside. So it can sometimes feel like bad news that God is looking on the heart because God is the judge and if he's looking on the inside, how are we going to be judged? And so is it good news or bad news? Well, loved ones, I want to tell you, it actually is at the end of the day, it's really, really, really good news because yes, God does look on the inside. He does look on the heart. But the same God who can see the heart is the God who can change the heart. And God, listen, God loves you even though he knows everything about you. He knows every thought, every desire, every fear, every insecurity, every lust, every bit of anger, every bit of despair, every bit of frustration, every bit of pride, every bit of arrogance, every bit of deceit. He sees it all and still loves you. The Lord looks on the heart. It, if any of us were really to get a window, if any human being were to truly get a window into the heart of darkness in, inside a human being apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, if any of us could take a look inside someone else's heart, if any of us could really even take a look inside our own heart apart from Christ, we would shudder. We would, we, would, we would draw back in fear and disgust if we saw what was really happening inside of any human heart. But God sees and still loves. And God sent his son to come and to warn us about our hearts. That's why he said so much about our hearts, about how out of our heart comes uh, jealousy and evil thoughts and sexual immorality. All of that stuff flows out of our heart. But Jesus went to the cross to suffer and to die, to pay for our sin. Not just the things that we do on the outside, but the sin that dwells on the inside. 
and he came to give us a heart transplant, to replace our heart of stone, to give us a new heart, a regenerated heart. So loved ones, it's really, really, really good news that the Lord sees the heart. But let me give you a couple of, a couple of warnings here. This passage is not a command for how we should look. This is a command for how God looks. This is not an instruction telling us how we should see. This is telling us that only God sees this way. Only God can see the heart. And so a couple of warnings. One, people can take this passage, they can interpret it like a command, like this is something I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be focused on my heart. I'm supposed to see my heart or other people's heart. And this can lead to two dangers. One is an obsession and an unhealthy amount of introspection where we're constantly evaluating what's happening in my heart and what's going on in my heart. And only God can see the heart. And we shouldn't be troubling ourselves with what am I doing and how's my heart and how are things going on on the inside. Listen, those are all good, legitimate questions, but those questions should cause us to humble ourselves and understand I don't see the way the Lord sees. And so rather than me trying to evaluate how I'm doing on the inside, we should be asking God, how am I doing on the inside? Praying like David prayed at the end of Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know me. We gotta know the limitations of our knowledge and what we can see. So don't become overly introspective because that's not what this verse is about. It's saying that God sees things that we don't see. So introspection is a, is, is a danger. The other danger is, is, what, is, is what sometimes can be labeled a discernment. Again, the verse says that no man can see the way God can see. Only God can see the heart. And some people twist this around and think that we are commanded or instructed or given permission to look into the hearts of other people. We can't do that. We can't connect those kinds of dots. Let me just give you one quick example in the next chapter. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28. The Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord sees the heart. We can only see the outside. Remember Eliab, that firstborn a son? Well, he was uh, uh, among the soldiers uh, who were fighting the Philistines. This is right before the battle uh, with Goliath. And David was there to deliver lunch. And as he's handing out the sandwiches, uh, Eliab looks at what is happening on the outside. He sees David present at the battlefront. And this is what happens. Verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, just like a little brother, what have I done now? Dave's like, I'm just, I'm just passing out the carrots and celery here. And Eliab's, no, I'm convinced. I, I know the evil in your heart. I know why you're really here. Loved ones, there's a, listen, human judgment really reaches its farthest border, its farthest reach when we start talking about what someone did. We go beyond the borders of human judgment when we move beyond what someone did to why they did it. 
Someone could tell you why they did it. They, they could explain their motives, but be very, very careful to think that you can attribute motive behind someone's behavior. If you make a habit of regularly assuming that you can see into someone's heart, it is going to create a lot of strain in your family, in your friendships, in your relationships with people within the church. Because you are going to start to assign motive to actions that you don't actually know the motive. And this can get so mixed up that someone can do a kind, nice deed. And out of discernment, you can think, oh, you're actually doing that because you're proud or you're arrogant or you're trying to cover up for something. Or you're actually trying to get back to me. But it's so unhealthy. Take a look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to the light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. If you start attributing motive to people, if you start saying, I know the purposes of your heart for why you're doing what you're doing, you are claiming to have access to information that God has not yet disclosed. You are putting yourself in the place of God. That's what Eliab was doing there. I know what you're doing, David. David was passing out lunch. That's all he was doing. And so we need to be very, very careful. We can assess what someone has done, but we're very limited in our understanding of why they did it. We can ask questions. We, we can invite someone to give us more detail, to explain their motives, but to, look, to leap to those kinds of assumptions is very, very dangerous. So the tryout continues because Jesse's got some other sons uh, verse 8 says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen uh, this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And, and, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord, the Lord has not chosen these. And so the auditions continue. And, and people... Uh, 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 Son after son, and Samuel's like, ah, ah, ah. you know, seven guys go by, and they're, they're all rejected. And then Samuel has to ask this kind of awkward uh, question. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Uh, uh, Jesse had his hands full. He had, he had eight sons. That's the double, double the amount of sons that I have. And so I, I, can, I can sort of... I can uh, identify with Jesse's struggle here because that's one of my fears. I fear for our youngest son, Boaz, that just some, sometime, you know, after church, we're all going to get in the car, we're going to be heading down McLaughlin Road, and we're going to look back and see that only three out of the four car seats are filled in the back of our car, you know? And I'm, just sort of, I'm always sort of afraid that we're going to leave one behind. And, you know, it's happened a couple of times at, at church here before where, you know, one of my children has come, like, on one of your hands, and you've sort of said, um, well, yeah, we found him, and I won't say where, where, you, where you found him, but and this fear that I'm just going to misplace one of them, and because they're always running around, all of that, and, and so it's a little bit awkward, a little bit embarrassing. Are all your, are all your sons, are all your sons here? And he's like, one, two, three, four, five. He starts, starts counting in his head. 
It says in verse 11, there remains yet the youngest, or that could be interpreted the smallest. There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit, sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and beautiful with and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. See, we don't see things the way God sees. And that's, and that's ultimately good news. Because we see a nobody and God sees his anointed. The guy that wasn't even invited to the audition. The guy who didn't even get noticed that there was a tryout happening. It, it, it didn't even cross Jesse's mind to bring David. He was a complete nobody. Totally overlooked. He was the one that God said to Samuel, he's the one, anoint him. That is my anointed. So David comes in from watching the sheep, probably doesn't even really know what's, what's going on. He's the youngest. He just goes where he's told. And so he just walks into this, this gathering, this, this sacrifice, and observation is made about his appearance. In verse 12, it says that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was, and was handsome. Uh, the word ruddy there, it simply means red. So that could mean sort of his complexion, that maybe he had a, a bronze hue from being out in the sun all of the time, watching watching the sheep. It could also mean that he had red hair or, or freckles, something like that, that he was uh, ruddy and handsome and had beautiful eyes. But he was so ordinary. He was a nobody. He was so pedestrian, so average, so vanilla, so dull. And God says, that's the one. You see, loved ones, this is the way that God works. God loves to take a nobody and anoint them and clothe them with his power. Cain was the oldest, but God chose Abel. It was Isaac instead of Ishmael. It wasn't Esau. It was Jacob. It wasn't the ten other brothers. It was Joseph. God has something. There's, there, there's just something in the way. As we talk about this master plan, that God sort of has this way of taking nobodies, people that are overlooked, People that, that on, a, on face judgment, on, on an initial a judgment, people think that no, they're of no value. They can't contribute anything. God takes nobodies and anoints them. Verse 13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The Hebrew word for uh, anointing is masha. And to be an anointed one was to, be to, to, to have the anointing. To have masha meant that you were an anointed one, which is mashaya, which is messiah in English. And in Greek, the word for messiah is Christ. Jesus is that ultimate anointed one. And loved ones, Jesus was a nobody. Same town, same overlooked Hick town, Bethlehem, this small little community, Samuel went to Bethlehem to find a king. A thousand years later, the Magi went to Bethlehem to find a king, a nobody, someone who was overlooked. He wasn't in the palace, he was probably in some sort of cave or, or cattle stall or even outside. He was laid in a manger. He was a nobody. 
but he was God's anointed. It says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from, from that day forward. Jesus was filled with the Spirit from birth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was that, he was, he was that ultimate anointed one, and yet he was that ultimate Nobody. It says about him in Isaiah 53 verse 2 that there was no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire. There was nothing on his outside. There was nothing about his, his upbringing or, or anything or his education. He was a complete nobody and yet he was the anointed of God. Micah 5.2, talking about the location where all of this happened, says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, this town that's a nobody town where David was from, and this is the town where the Messiah would be from, from you shall come forth to, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And then uh, one verse later it says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So he started as a nobody. He started in this nobody town, Bethlehem, born in a manger. But his greatness, after his death, burial, and resurrection for our sin to pay the price, now he will be great from the ends of the earth. And that's why we exist as a church. Our mission statement is to make disciples of all nations. We exist so that Christ would be made great to the ends of the earth. But he was a nobody. And this is how God sees. This is how God sees you. You might feel insignificant or average or pedestrian or like a nobody. But in Christ, that story is very, very different. Look at what Paul said to the church at Corinth. First Corinthians chapter 1 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. What he's saying is, hey, church at Corinth, you were all a bunch of nobodies. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of Christ, because of him who was the nobody, who God chose to be his anointed. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You are in Messiah Jesus. You are in anointed Jesus, the nobody who turned out to be the anointed one, the Messiah. And we are found in him, like we are clothed in him. To, to be anointed, to have oil poured over you, or to be clothed in something, to be covered, surrounded, so we are anointed in Christ. And because of that, we are in Christ. We are found in him. So the, way, so the way that Jesus is treated is the way that now we are treated. He is the son of God, the only one who deserves to go to heaven. But because we're in him, we get to go as well. And it says, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and Redemption. God doesn't see the way that we see. 
God doesn't see us the way that we so often see us, like that we don't have a whole lot to contribute, like we don't ultimately matter in the grand scheme of things, but God sees you in Christ. He sees you in the context of his anointed son, the nobody who who was the Messiah, who was the anointed one, and so that he looks at you, a nobody, and says, you are part of my plan You are part of my family. You belong to me. And this is how God sees us. He doesn't see the end. He sees the beginning. He doesn't see the outside. He sees the inside. And he doesn't see a nobody. He sees his anointed son. Let's bow together and worship him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it speaks so clearly to our greatest needs for making sense of what's happening in our lives, the good things and the bad things. We need your word to make sense out of um, the difference between our appearance and our character. And we need your word to, to help us understand our need for significance or our struggles with feeling so insignificant. And so God, I pray that you would be with us now as we respond in worship, as we think about that baby who was born in a manger and now, Lord, he is exalted over all. Lord, I pray that there would be worship and awe and wonder and glory in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.